All right, it is the week of December 6th, 2021, and this is the Fight Business Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Ogier, and today we're going to talk about the UFC bringing back live fight night events. Starting March 26th, they are supposedly going to Columbus, Ohio for a live fight night event. We've talked about previously on the show how hosting these events at the Apex has kept cost downs. So we're going to take a little bit of a deep dive into why the UFC might be changing their strategy and bringing back live events. What What is the purpose? If we know that their costs are lower, which we do, why go back out on the road for fight nights? Well, we'll talk about that and break it down in pretty in-depth detail. Then we're going to talk about Endeavor CFO's comments regarding UFC sponsorship. Only a couple of comments, but a lot to unpack regarding the types of sponsors that the UFC is looking for, as well as uh, what they can expect revenue-wise from both sponsorships and international media rights. Then we're looking at TV rights between ESPN and the UFC. We have some numbers that have come out, according to Dave Meltzer, regarding what ESPN is paying the UFC for just their TV and streaming rights, so pay-per-view not included, and also some projections as to what the next deal, whenever it comes due, might be, at least as of right now. Then we're getting into the meat and potatoes of this episode, which is going to be the World Fight League. Darren Owen went on the MMA Hour, uh, spoke with Ariel Hawani about the World Fight League. We've got a lot of new information. Also was a very revealing interview for several reasons. I'm going to talk to you about what I saw from a business perspective and some of my consulting expertise perspective, as well as you know what we can glean about the WFL moving forward in 2023 to start. So with that in mind, we've got the time time stamps in the bottom as always, and let's go ahead and dive right in. All right, so let's talk about the UFC bringing back live fight nights, right? According to reports, March 26th, Columbus, Ohio will be the first fight night back outside of the apex in quite some time believe before the pandemic um you've got matt brown of course a native of that area wanting to get on the card a lot of people excited um you know i might actually go to that card we'll see it just in terms of probably as a fan i don't know that i would go reporting but who knows um but you know that's that's a big deal because that is the first official fight night event that's been announced outside of the apex we've seen the ufc obviously do live events whether it be in florida or texas or nevada um during this pandemic as there's been either low cases or you know loosening restrictions we've seen a lot of that but only for big pay-per-views only for events where they know the gate is going to make up for any costs and logistics that they're going to have to set up and do in a particular area. So this is a bit of a surprising move, right? We've talked about how even before the pandemic, Dana White had said the Apex was going to be this place where they could produce a lot of content and host events and do all of this stuff from their own backyard. And from a business perspective, we know it saves them a ton of money, right? You, you, don't have to move and set up a cage. You don't have to pay people to move and set up a cage. Uh, you don't have to pay for, you know, various riggings and things um, to set up live broadcast. You don't have to do 
whatever you need to do regarding a deal between venues, you know, what what are they paying or, or what are you getting out of that versus what your costs are to move everybody to a particular venue on a, any given weekend. You don't have to deal with all that. It's literally all in a building you own. It's all of your own equipment and you're able to charge VIP access, which gives you a just straight gate that's pretty much free and clear of any expenses, as well as, you know, you can have employees working in there doing that stuff where it's 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 super low cost. We we know it is super low cost. That was the whole point of the Apex. It was also going to be used for other content, right? But I mean that that was a major part of this. So for them to after their historic year where they've made more money than they ever have in the past nine months or so, as was mentioned the last time we talked, um, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense, right? Why would you go back out and do live events? Well, there are a couple of different reasons they might want to do this from a business perspective. One is pent up demand, right? Not a lot of people especially in the pandemic, can just get up and fly to, you know, an Apex and pay the Apex VIP experience, which is very high. Uh, I've mentioned, you know, I've seen $4,500, $7,000 for some of these events when you've got, you know, one or two cool superstars and, and you get a VIP experience, so you get catering. It's, you know, you get to kind of rub shoulders with some people. I get that, but it's it's still expensive. Not a lot of people can afford to just go fly out for a weekend to go do that. Even with the pay-per-views, right? We know that a lot of these pay-per-views either sold out or were much higher ticket prices than before. And a big big part of that was pent-up demand. You had people who really wanted to get things back to normal. They wanted to go see their favorite fighters. They may end up going to, you know, fly somewhere and go see a pay-per-view anyway at some point. And they weren't able to for a long time finally got live events uh, this past year in July. And so, of course, people were willing to pay a premium to go see those live events, to go do those things. So there is a pent-up demand where prior to 2019, when you kind of had these fight nights going all over the place and you would hit a particular city um, I think Wichita was one in particular in Kansas where it was uh, Dos Santos versus Ivanov. And Gate did okay, uh, not like a huge attendance, uh, not a, a ton of things coming in. They probably either broke even or lost a little money on that. You had that happening because the UFC was was going around all over the place all year. Right, 365, you would have fight night events everywhere. Um, I'm still bitter because right before the pandemic, they had just announced an Austin fight night event. I was very excited to go to that. And yeah, they canceled it, of course. So now everything's been in Houston, which again, I can't really complain as a fighter, or as a fan, rather. I'm not a fighter. Uh, as a fan, as a fight fan, I can't complain because Houston's just down the road if I want to go, but it's a day trip. But it it's something where when it comes to your hometown, there are a lot of people where, oh, okay, I can go do that. I live in a suburb of Columbus. I can go ahead and drive that 
45 minutes to an hour to go see that. Or I live in Cincinnati or, you know, a city that's maybe a couple hours away that, again, is a day drive. Like, I am from Houston. So, yeah, I can go do that. I don't have to buy plane tickets. I don't have to get a hotel. I don't have to do all that stuff. You may end up getting a hotel, depending on that stuff, but you don't have to. It, it much easier for fans to not deal with that. So you have all of that. And then you have the fact that these fans probably, you know, aren't... How do I want to put this? Probably aren't in a position where they can easily just go up and go from a jobs perspective too, right? A lot of of UFC fans are blue collar or working people. That's or at least that's who they market towards. They they have to work on Saturdays and Sundays a lot. So you can't just hop on a plane, go see a show, hop on a plane back. You have to go to work and then sweet, I'm off for the night and go to the fights and then come back. Now this is a lot of speculation about the fan base, but the the point remains there's probably pent up demand there and the UFC knows this. I'm sure they've looked at the numbers. I'm sure they've talked to some people. They've talked to some cities because the cities, right, like to host these events. It helps bring in tourism. It helps people start going out and having, you know, drinks after the fights, drinks before the fights, eating before the fights. All of that stuff happens. Cities like hosting these types of things. So they might be willing to make more concessions or to pay a higher price to get the UFC to kind of come in and do a show there. So... Again, lots of different reasons and pent-up demand on both the consumer and partnership side. That's one part of this, I believe. The other part is the brand and image of the UFC, right? The UFC, and Dana White in particular, has been very much, you know, we want to have live events. We hate this pandemic. We're not going to force fighters to get vaccinated. We're not going to do all this stuff. They are appealing to the fan base and the customers that want to kind of continue to live their life before the pandemic. This helps sell that brand more, right? UFC is going from place to place. They're they're doing their thing again. They're not you know afraid of this. They're bringing back events, all that stuff. I mean, it's not it's not going to hurt your image when that's what you're going for. And White has been very outspoken with that. And again, that just strengthens the customer base. That helps get those particular customers to say, you know what, I'm willing to pay more for my ticket because they're, they're bringing it back. They're, you know, they're bringing back events. They're doing this again. They're, they're getting things back to normal. I'll pay an extra $10, $15 for my ticket. I'll pay an extra $30, $40 for my ticket in some cases, right? I know that sounds ludicrous in some ways, but it's also not that ludicrous in others. It's kind of nuts. Um, brand imaging and brand loyalty is a very powerful thing. If you don't believe me, look at the way some fans defend the UFC over things that a lot of people objectively would be like that's not right or that's really crappy of a business to do there are plenty of examples of this on social media (laughs) 
brand loyalty is a big, big thing. If you get a diehard customer who's buying all your pay-per-views, who's buying your merchandise, who's flying out to events, that's the type of customer you want to create as often as possible. And so, again, going and doing a live event, getting someone who might be buying pay-per-views, who might be on the cusp of, of becoming that more hardcore fan that's really just, you know, ride or die with the UFC, Bellator sucks, whatever, I'm a UFC guy type of deal. It's worth it. it it's, it's worth it if you can convert enough people through a live event like that. You do the, you know, parking lot type of fan experience. You make it a thing. It, it It's how it works. And again, if, if it sounds a little bit far-fetched, you're kind of like, well, yeah, Patrick, I guess. But, you know, really? You really think it's that powerful? Think about, think about when you were as a kid, especially if you're an American. If you're, although I'm sure this applies to soccer clubs as well. But think about when you're a kid or you're, you know, a teen or what have you. And if your, you know, parents took you to a football game, right? And you, you do tailgating and I'm not talking about, you know, necessarily an NFL game. I'm talking, you know, any, any type of football game where maybe it's a, a high school, they're really into their high school football, they're, they're a college, right? They've got a college team and you go there and you go see a, let's say an Illini game. Right, grew up in Illinois, so let's say you're going to an Illini game and you go do the tailgate and you, you spend the time and all this stuff, and and then you get a house full of diehard Illini fans, and that's their thing. And and they're, you know, look, look at the way that people do that all across all sports, right? The UFC's goal is to do that only with the UFC. It's not a particular team. You might have particular fighters, yes, that you love and all that stuff, but it's it's to become a UFC household where, yeah, we watch the fights every weekend. You know, there are stories on the SureDog forums. There are stories you can find everywhere about, yeah, me, me and my old man watched fights every weekend. It was awesome. It, it's bonding. That's the type of relationship they want to create because those are the diehard fans. It's the same thing WWE does, same type of methodology right but it's it's really to engage in those fan base in that fan base and make them spend more money convert those hardcores into true hardcores or semi-hardcores into hardcores now it also is there because you know what I'm in a smaller town or I'm in a town where maybe there's not a ton to do and oh you know what the fights are coming through well, okay, like, yeah, all right, we'll go to a fight night. That sounds cool. I have one buddy who's really into fights, and he's like, yeah, come on, man. I really want to go to the fights. Let's go. Okay, I'll go check it out and see if I enjoy it. Then you get new fans. It's a good route for customer acquisition. It, it's, it is, right? Some people will go and love it. Other people will go and be like, eh. But, I mean, back in the day when I was very into pro wrestling, when I first got into pro wrestling, that's how it happened to me is I had – Two friends who were diehard pro wrestling fans. They held a show in Champaign, Illinois, funny enough. And I was like, all right, I'm going to go. I'll go with them. That's what we're doing tonight with the boys, sure. And then it was like, wow. And I got really into it. And then I started 
buying pay-per-views, which they were still under pay-per-views at the time, and buying merchandise and all that stuff, that's how you acquire new customers. Word of mouth, this this is just a business rule in general. Word of mouth is more powerful marketing than any billboard, any type of ad you could place online, what have you. There's a reason why the entire software as a service industry does this net promoter score thing, which you can look up. Um, Word of mouth is huge. If you get a friend or a friend of a friend to, or a work colleague or what have you say like, hey, try this out, you're much more likely to adopt it in a positive light than if it's a blaring ad of, check out these highlights of, you know, Dustin Poirier versus Charles Oliveira. It's just it's just a proven fact. Word of, word of mouth marketing is the strongest type of marketing you can get. So that's another reason to do these, right? There are benefits. Now, looking at the costs, here's the thing. Prior to the pandemic, when this was, again, a regular type of thing for the UFC, we know a couple of fight nights maybe didn't do so well, at least from what we have from the antitrust lawsuit, as well as, you know, some other reports, we know that a couple of these fight nights didn't do particularly well, but others still made some profit, albeit small. So there's opportunity costs there where you're probably going to make more profit per show at the apex than you will doing the traveling circus bit. But with the type of year that the UFC has had, and the type of money they're bringing in and Endeavor's backing, it's probably viewed as a almost a marketing cost, is how I could see this particular strategy, right? That opportunity cost is really a marketing cost to, again, get new fans to sell some of their other services, like the VIP experiences, which are done by On Location, which... Who owns that? What do you know? Endeavor. It's a way to kind of create and attract new customers. I could see that being the case. Now, will they do as many? I don't believe that. I don't think you're going to see fight nights basically every weekend like we did before. It could be I'm wrong, and they do go back to that, especially this year, this upcoming year in 2022. Um, because of the pent-up demand. And if they do, again, I'm imagining you're going to see some pretty higher ticket prices so they can help cover their costs. Uh, But I think at some point, they'll taper down to less events than they were doing, or they'll start off that way, and will target specific markets, be selective, and then do the rest at the Apex. You'll definitely see more fight nights at the Apex in general, I'd imagine. Similarly to how, you know, pay-per-views, when they were doing the travel and pay-per-views, you had pay-per-views all over the place, but you always had the most pay-per-views of the year in Vegas, right? I think you're going to see a set number of fight nights. I don't think the most, but you're going to see a set number of fight nights take place at the Apex each year. It makes too much sense from a cost perspective. But the traveling circus for particular markets and areas they want to hit, well... That's not a bad call, especially if you view it as a marketing cost for the UFC, but also for Endeavor. 
because Endeavor is also looking to try and make sports properties their thing. They they bought nine minor league teams, not minor league baseball teams, recently. Um, I mean, they're trying to become a bit of a sports empire as well. It, it's probably strategically all aligning to those plans, I would imagine. Right? So... I think those are probably the biggest reasons why UFC's gone back to live events. Those are the ones that would make sense. Um, if I had to say just one strategy they're looking at, it's for me, it's marketing. It's not so much the, hey, we got to take advantage of this pent-up demand and then we're going back to the apex. It's, I think that's part of it. But for me, I, I would say it's more of a marketing tool to acquire new customers and to help solidify their brand image. Which I shouldn't say solidify because their brand image is pretty, you know, concrete at this point, but to help strengthen it. To help, as we'll talk about here in a second, with sponsors, that's another big thing, right? I, I feel that there's probably some sponsorship opportunities where if the UFC has this perceived presence of all over the nation... They're not just based in Nevada, pretty much, occasionally doing a show here and there. They're they're all over the place. My guess is that would help attract sponsors. I don't know how much, depends on the sponsor, but I can see that being a factor as well. So that's my two cents on that. Let me know your thoughts on live events and if you're excited for live events to come back. Because I've heard some people be like, yeah, I can't wait to go to a UFC event again a fight night and then i've also heard people say these fight nights have been garbage i don't want to pay for that so let me know if if here's here's the question i posed to you if they were going to put on fight nights like they have the past year or two in your hometown are you going or a city that would reasonably have a ufc event so if you're in the middle of nowhere you know that's one thing but are would you be going if it's in a bigger-ish city or, you know, mid-sized city. That's what I want to know for you. That's that's the question I pose to all of you. All right, so the next thing I want to talk about is something that came to my attention. Shout out to Paul Gift over MMA Analytics, of course, one of the big three, in my opinion, um, who had tweeted out something that said, UFC sponsorships open categories per Endeavor CFO, quick service restaurants, insurance, and automotive, and that they felt good about the potential for margin expansion with high flow through revenue drivers like sponsorship and international media rights. Um, John Nash goes on to explain that high flow through revenue is, we're talking about 85% or so, uh, and and that's also, you know, going to show up in the EBITDA is what he said, um, which means it, it comes through as net income. So let, let's unpack that a little bit. The sponsorship category is quick service restaurants. So uh, McDonald's, Burger King, Chick-fil-A, and drive-thrus, right? That's what that means generally. Uh, insurance, you know, automotive. Uh, well, actually, automotive in, automotive insurance is is part of that, so... All of that fun stuff, um, homeowners insurance, I'm sure, 
you know, life insurance, I'd imagine, is probably up there, too. Any type of insurance, but a lot of insurance, at least in America, is car um, or life, some home. But, yeah, so those companies. Uh, automotive itself, you could be looking at particular car brands or, you know, AutoZone places would be one that comes to mind in terms of just a big national chain. Those types of sponsors, right? Those all scream to me very big companies. So that's not necessarily the case in what we see now, right? Battle Motors is one that sponsors the light heavyweight rankings. Um, We've seen smaller sponsors, of course, in the UFC, but if those are the targets, whether you get the small fry and work your way up or you're trying to get some of these big guys, like, I mean, could you imagine if McDonald's sponsored the UFC, how big that would be, right? The, The main thing that that says to me is they're looking for very high dollar and potential sponsorships. The goal is they're in a space where, again, McDonald's makes billions upon billions in revenue and and shells out a ton in sponsorships. Um, Same with insurance companies. They make hand over fist money. The big big guys, right? Um, You know, Progressive, State Farm, all those guys. uh, Automotive, if we're talking... If we're talking actual cars, right, and and that industry, that's one thing. If you're talking AutoZone and car parts and all of that, that's a whole nother. But we're they they all fit the brand, as I just mentioned. You know, these are the companies that are either necessary or, in terms of insurance, in a lot of cases, or would fit. You know, the kind of blue collar type of persona we're not talking about a guy with two hundred thousand dollars a year salary plenty of disposable income uh you know going to the fanciest restaurants the three-star michelin restaurant uh for special occasions we're talking about the guy that you know works a nine to five or much more than a nine to five uh get grabs lunch at McDonald's, Chick-fil-A or whatever is into is into cars and, you know, needs stuff for maybe fixing up old cars. It's the blue collar image again. That's the persona they're going after. It fits it fits into that. Those sponsorships do. But it it makes sense that those are the three areas that are open right now. I would also imagine that they would be open to other things, right? Crypto.com, I'm sure, came to them with that amount of money, and they said, well, yeah, okay. And and crypto does fit into the same type of customer profile, I'm sure, that they have. But, you know, I would not be shocked that if you had some crazy type of money coming in, they'd listen. Endeavor's not going to turn people away if you're offering more than enough money. But those targets make sense for the UFC for that particular brand. And more than likely, if you had someone come in or some type of 
let's say a, a luxury yacht maker. I have no idea what I'm talking about, but assuming there is a luxury yacht dealer or maker, uh, and they come in and try and do UFC sponsorships, Endeavor's probably going to be like, unless you're going to pay double what you normally pay, we're not doing that. And then how about instead you come be part of one of our other groups? Because we've got like a thousand different things that we've bought. Come sponsor that, right? They have plenty of different products and services where those three make sense for the UFC and the product they're trying to sell. They're, they've got the Euro Basketball League, they've got PBR, they've got you know these minor league baseball teams now. They've got other sports properties that if somebody's trying to do sports but doesn't fit the customer profile, the UFC is trying to go after. They've got other entities where Endeavor could say, how about we do this instead? So I'm not shocked by those three categories. And then again, potential very high value, right? You're not going after some niche category that maybe tops out where a company is, I don't know, the best company in the business is making a couple hundred million dollars. You're going after billion dollar revenue entities at the top end of it, which also means if there's billion dollar revenue companies and it's not a, a monospony or or a hard to make service, really what I'm getting at is barriers to entry. If there aren't very many barriers to entry and there's a large market, then you know, you're gonna have a lot of players, a lot of different options. Any low barrier to entry, high volume product market, which who, you know, what is it? 72 billion served that McDonald's always brags about or how many, you know, how much food they churn out at any one of these quick service restaurants or insurance, how many people need insurance and any types of those spaces, you're going to have tons of different options and players. So you can go after those huge guys or you can go after one of the middle guys that you're more likely to get because that's a way for them to grow and you're much more likely to get a better deal, right? So again, not shocked by those. And then we come to the high flow revenue, right? With those sponsorships, you're talking about essentially maybe you have to give the fighters a cut or you rather you choose to give the fighters a cut in the case of crypto.com. Um, but beyond that, that's just, it's marketing costs for whoever the sponsor is. And yes, you would probably have to do, depending on the size of the deal, you'd have to have fighters do events or wear your product, all that stuff. There would be some cost to that, but that's the high flow through, you're getting 85% net, net profit. I mean, that's huge. As I've mentioned, past couple months on this show, sponsorships are really what the UFC has been focusing on. Makes sense, especially with Endeavor driving it and needing that revenue coming in. Because in other areas, they've kind of hit a maturity point and they've got to now find new ways to grow in certain aspects of their business, which happens with every single business, right? Not surprising, but they've reached maturity in certain areas. Sponsorships, though, is not one of them. Sponsorships is 
a place where they can leverage their maturity as the market leader, as the the clear premier mixed martial arts mixed martial arts league in terms of just being light years ahead of the competition, they can leverage that to get big name sponsors. And they have. They really have. Um, I expect them to, to continue to do that. Zip Recruiter, right? It's a weird thing to see with the UFC, but the reason it worked is they they're, have all this growth. They have a lot of people watching on ESPN+. Plus, and they've got that partnership too, which is massive because then you've got a... I don't know if I, I care for the UFC and it's kind of eh, but I know ESPN... And I, I mean, that's the, the sports place, right? So if I'm any type of sponsor trying to get into the sports place, I know the UFC is probably looking pretty good in my eyes because they have an exclusive deal with ESPN as their broadcast partner. I mean, that's, that's going to be a big green flag, thumbs up reference for potential sponsorships. Because the way this works is, right, You, if you're trying to build a partnership or, you know, work on sponsorships, generally it's partnership uh, or relationship manager. There's, there's a lot of different names in it. But I think, it, I think what I saw on the corporate website for the UFC a while back was uh, partnerships manager or, or alliance manager, one of the two. It was worded that way. But what your job to do is is to go sell the UFC brand and say, Hey, like we can up your sales. We can up your customer engagement. We can have this synergy where it makes a lot of sense. And you have conversations, you sit to have a lot of lunches, a lot of nights at the bar, all that fun stuff. But at some point, if things are going well, whoever you're courting for your potential sponsor is going to ask about references and be like, all right, well, let me talk to a couple other people who have sponsored you. Or let me talk to a couple other people that you're, you're dealing with. ESPN as a reference is a very big plus, right? Reebok, as much as that deal wasn't, you know, what both sides expected, early on, I'm sure that was a big boost in terms of references. In fact, as it's been alluded to in conversations, especially with COO Lawrence Epstein, you know, the Reebok deal was part of the reason that ESPN came on board. Was yes, you needed the uniform, you needed to look good, but you also had a big player in the space that you were partnering with. ESPN maybe box at just the idea of the UFC, but then they say the UFC and Reebok, and they say, all right, we'll have these conversations, we'll talk, and then they see endeavors in the mix, they, you know, continue to talk, all that, and then all of a sudden, there you go. There's a lot that goes into partnership management. It is not an easy job. It's a lot of schmoozing, it's a lot of, you know, feeling stuff out, trying to to negotiate these companies to give you money on the promise of it will help them either you know boost their sales and revenue through the marketing uh 
increase customer acquisition, you'll give them data from your customers, that type of thing. I mean, it's a, it's a tough space. Trying to get value out of marketing is a tough space. It can be done. There are some good methods out there, but trying to say like this particular marketing rose our revenue this much is not an easy job. It is not cut and dry. It's very gray, very gray area. So again, makes sense the UFC is trying to leverage their space in the industry to get these big sponsors. The more they get, I don't want to say non-traditional, but the more they get non-traditional for MMA sponsors, which is traditional for everyone else. So what you would see in a basketball league, a, the NFL, MLB, the more they get those types of sponsors on board, then it's just going to keep cascading. Because suddenly the idea and the image of fighting is not this grotesque thing, not this kind of, you know, back alley redheaded stepchild, which apologize to the redheads. That's just, that's just the phrase. I don't know why, but, um, it's not, it's not that anymore. It's okay. No, they're doing deals with ZipRecruiter. They're doing deals with ESPN. They're doing deals with these more recognizable brands you might see at other sports. And so then it's much easier to court those types of sponsors when you have others you you've already locked in. So I guess that it's important. It's not a lot that was said there, but it's important to unpack because it is really revealing of the UFC's strategy and their focus at the moment, I feel. I feel it's been all about, again, cutting costs and boosting revenue, and they've kind of maxed out, I mean, not fully on both, but they've definitely, you know, hit economies of scale for some of that stuff. There's only so many, you know, contender series fighters you can have on a card. I think that's why fans started to notice, like, what are these cards? They always had cards that were, at least part of the cards were people that were kind of new or what have you. And it was used to be on several fight nights, a good chunk of them, but you maybe had a good main card or all this stuff. They've started to kind of max out them where they can just say, hey, we've got a great main event, and then we've got this as the co-main, and then the rest of the card is kind of eh. But hey, great main event. They've kind of maxed that out. They had the Apex, so they maxed out live event costs. Uh, you know, they broke records this past year. To break records further, you have to look to a new channel, Right? Because you've kind of hit the wall in some of these or nearing hit the wall. You can't squeeze that much more out of it. Sponsorships are where it's at. So important to talk about that because, you know, that is that is a big thing. Piggyback off of sponsorships and media rights deals and all of that. Dave Meltzer uh, tweeted out that right now the ES ESPN UFC deal for just streaming and TV rights is around $300 million. 
So it doesn't include pay-per-view or the split or anything, but just for that part of it, it's $300 million. Right? According to Meltzer, that right now, current projections are for that to be doubled when the deal comes up. Again, that's free and clear money, right? That's high flow money. You you were giving us $300 million for these rights. You know what? How about you give us twice that much? Now, that deal, again, won't be done for a long time. But important to note that right now they're projected to double their TV rights and streaming deal. It was also mentioned by Meltzer that last night's, uh, last night's, last weekend's, fight card did a 0.22 in the 18 to 34 rating or 49 ratings the the coveted 18 to 49 spot right 0.22 which is not great if you look at several other programs uh what monday night football did 4.49 uh you know it's not the best but they're still projected to double it Ratings has been a hot topic in other industries. Um, It was semi-hot topic in the UFC, especially before the ESPN Plus deal, right? Um, Was a major topic because we saw ratings decline. Ratings were always talked about. But the, the fact of the matter is this, is ultimately TV is dying, right? Any way you want to cut it, the old traditional TV model is is dying. Across the board, ratings are, are dropping. Um, and it's hard for advertisers to swallow that pill. And broadcast companies, right? Disney, it's, it's no secret that Disney kind of wants to sell ESPN, or at least did. Now they might have changed their tune a little bit, um, given the rise of ESPN+, Plus, which we'll get to in a second. But... For a while, they wanted to sell ESPN, and it was pretty much, hey, and there were all those layoffs, right? That was a big thing. TV, as we know it, is shifting more and more to streaming. More and more, you see people like, yeah, I got Netflix, I got Hulu, I don't really have anything else. Or I've got Netflix and Hulu and Amazon Prime, but eh, not much else. I've got... I don't have Netflix. I have Hulu and I have ESPN Plus and Disney Plus because of the deal. Sorry. Wouldn't want to forget that. But it's turning into this kind of package streaming services. More and more streaming services are coming out. You got Paramount Plus. You got, uh, gosh, you got Apple TV, which has been around for a while. Uh, You've got, um, or Apple Plus, rather. Sorry, that's new. Um, You've got all these different services constantly being created. It, it's, it's the the future. It will take a little bit longer than a clear cut transition of, you know, say CDs to MP3s or something of that nature. But even CDs to MP3s. That took a while, right? It was not overnight where all of a sudden people stopped using CDs and started downloading MP3s. 
and there were weird iterations. He had those hit clips. Man, those hit clips were so weird, right? Like, it's a whole thing. Um, but as, you know, iPods come out, that radically changes the game. Suddenly CDs are declining, all that. You, then you have the iPhone declining. It, And now CDs are, they exist, but, I mean, rarely do people buy CDs now. Unless they're like special live performances or commemorative and they want to have them, yeah, that's fine. But really, records are, are the new kind of rise for that. TV will still live on. It will not be a, hey, we're done with TV forever. Like, cable is gone for good. Nobody has cable anymore. I think that would be, I mean, maybe it goes away eventually, but I, I don't foresee that happening in my lifetime. Or where, you know, you can't use cable TV. It's truly a thing of the past. But, you know, this is this is how it goes. This is how it works. Um, streaming has become the new thing. As the internet capabilities have gotten better, streaming is becoming more popular. And, and so when you look at ratings now, TV ratings, Nielsen and all that, they matter, but the streaming numbers matter more. And so while 0.22 for last Saturday's card on ESPN isn't a good number, right? It doesn't count everyone who watched the event through ESPN+. And it doesn't look at any numbers in terms of subscriber attribution through ESPN Plus. Because as I said on the last show, right, ESPN is very happy and thinks that the UFC was a major driver of people signing up for ESPN Plus. They're very happy with the UFC. And when it comes to subscription services, it really doesn't matter how much you watch something. It only matters that they continue to pay you that monthly subscription. That's what makes it so weird. It's not like cable. Well, I, I say that, but that's not entirely true because of advertisements. So there, right, there are important things in terms of trying to, to grab advertisers into the shows. But it's, at least from ESPN's perspective, it's a different beast. You still do want advertisers, but it's not solely dependent on advertising. And if anything, when you're going to do advertising deals, you're looking and pushing forward your subscriber count. You're saying, look, we've got 15 million subscribers. Come advertise with us. And then you might get into the nitty gritty of like, well, yeah, we can put you on a UFC event. We can put you on a, a Marvel show. We can put you on the banners over here. We can we can, we can put you on the Hulu show. What, what, what makes sense? That's all well and good, but it's a different type of, of selling and a different type of beast than it was with TV where it was all about we need advertising re revenue desperately and your show lived or died based on advertising right that's essentially what happened viewership would would determine exactly what advertisers would be willing to pay 
and what you could merchandise and all that fun stuff, sure. But I mean, it, it was a much bigger piece. Think of it kind of the same way that the UFC used to require pay-per-views and pay-per-view buys to survive, to truly make money, right? They used to live or die on pay-per-views. That's why Conor was so big. That's why he had leverage for bigger stars like Brock Lesnar and all that stuff. Now that's gone. Streaming, same type of situation. They now have a set amount of money coming in just for people to subscribe. It goes directly to them. It doesn't go to a cable company that aggregates all these channels. It goes directly to ESPN, or Disney, rather. All that stuff. So it's a different beast. But, again, we also can't know what things are going to look like by the time this deal is up. This deal still has... I think I know at least five years on it. I'm pretty sure closer to six or seven because of the extension with the pay-per-view. I will look that up and figure it. I will mention that on the next episode because I, I, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I know they have at least five years left on this deal, right? No telling what the world's going to look like in that time. So just a projection, but when you see ratings and you hear then they're doubling up their media rights, they're doing all this. Remember, it's it's the streaming ratings that matter. It is not the, it's the streaming numbers that nobody sees except the company and that then they show to advertisers. That's what matters. Cable ratings are great if they're, you know, good ratings, you can flaunt them, but they're not what they used to be. They don't have that same power. Important to note, when people are looking and saying, man, they only did 0.22. Like, how are they going to get double what they're getting right now in media rights? Because the streaming numbers are big. So keep that all in mind. Because again, as things shift, I think that's going to become even more important in the next five years. And when the UFC goes for their next bid for broadcast media rights. I think it'll play a major factor. All right, so last thing we have to talk about today, and I think I said this was the meat and potatoes, but I don't know that's going to be as long as some of the other things because I got into some stuff on some other segments, but it's important we talk about this. The World Fight League, right? They had their founder, commissioner, Darren Owen on the MMA Hour. Now, for those of you unfamiliar with Darren Owen, he goes into it a little bit on the show with Ariel, but this is a guy that was the CEO of Aggression Fight League, I believe, in um, or AFC, so Aggression Fighting Championship in Canada, was a bigger type of promotion in Canada, uh, and then in 2013 was bought by the World Series of Fighting. He then ends up being, you know, part of World Series of Fighting. And he stated on the Hawani show it's not what he thought it would be. He butted heads with some people, which we'll circle back around to. Um, and then reveals an important fact where, you know, PFL owns the rights to World Series of Fighting in the U.S., but outside of that, 
there there's another entity. It's World Series of Fighting Global, where he was promoted to COO, and he has been for the past five years or so. And now he's venturing out into doing the WFL. So just to unpack that, right? This is a guy that's been in the business for quite some time, um, 15, 20 years. What, I think he said 20. So, um, yeah, I mean, he's, he's a, a veteran of the industry side of things. He's been involved with World Series of Fighting, which is not usually a great thing, given what we know about WSOF and all their craziness. Um, but, you know, some of the people he butted heads with, Ariel being the, you know, new Hilwani that he is, which I very much enjoy compared to old Ariel, um, pressed him a little bit and said he was bumping heads with Ali Abdelaziz. So that's probably a better sign. Right? In some ways, maybe not business-wise, which again, we'll, we'll come up here in a second. But this is, this is an industry vet. This is not a, this is not a guy who doesn't know the fight side of the business, as he so put it. And I, I do believe that. If, if you're in that type of role that he's been in, you know, first at AFC, then at WSOF, then WSOF Global, which is, again, you probably, if you're US, you probably haven't heard too much about it. There was the lawsuit type of thing going on at one point. Um, we covered many, many episodes back, but yeah, with their whole weird schism where there, there are currently lawsuits being brought against the PFL by former WSOF people because of the name change and part of the, old, the whole thing. It, it's a bit of a mess. Um, can highly recommend you know articles out there on it, either former articles where I've worked or you know I believe Sure Dog has a couple places, um, a couple articles that I did for them. If not, I'll, I'll ask me about it. I'll I'll let you know. But um, yeah, it's it, it's interesting because what we learned about the league was. You're going to have four conferences, one that covers most of Asia, Eurasia, and, and all of that. Um, one that is European, one is that is kind of South American, and then one that's North American. Like South American-Africa hybrid kind of. Um, yeah, I mean, you've, you've got, it's, it's the EAC, the SAC, NAC, and then the, I forget the last one. Um, but those are the four conferences. Eight teams in each conference, right? And then you play each other, eventually get into a playoff situation. I would assume at some point, I didn't see this on the slides he had there, but I'd assume at some point um, they go into the playoffs and then all face each other in some big event, right? So... Again, you're talking about eight teams per conference, so 32 teams, um, which owners are apparently paying tens of millions of dollars for the ability to to own a team, which, again, that's a big asking price 
for this type of thing. So you need a lot of different people involved. Uh, you mentioned Joe Kelly was involved. That's the guy that originally did Titan uh, Fighting Championship, I believe. Um, talked about, um, you know, uh, whoever GSP was working with. It escapes me right now, and I'm not going to spend the time looking it up. But you can... I highly recommend you watch the MMA Hour interview. Let me just say that to get into the details. But the biggest things that jump out at me about that interview are this. One, that interview is a great example of a new founder slash CEO, right? Um, Ariel pressed him on some some questions and he, he either caved or he kind of diverted, but it wasn't done in a way that you might typically see in terms of that typical CEO, experienced CEO know how, knows how to handle this type of question deflection, right? And I'm not saying he doesn't have experience in interviews because I, I know he does, but um, you could tell that he's a little green as a founder, owner, CEO, an entrepreneur. I think if I think in front of when he was, you know, doing C-suite level at WSOF Global and and um, AFC, I think in those regards, it was probably a little bit easier, um, a little bit different than really brand new startup CEO. And those positions, the companies had already been established, right? He had worked with them for a while. Uh, and, and you could tell the difference. You can. You really can tell the difference between a seasoned vet of an established company versus a seasoned vet who then tries and and does the startup because suddenly there's not a marketing team and PR team behind you. There's not several people that you are in constant contact with who have kind of been in their roles for a while. They're probably newer and experienced at least to this particular type of company and entity because it's brand new. You could take, you know, six of the smartest people in a room at, you know, a big consulting firm like McKenzie, six partners at McKenzie, say, and then have them go do a car startup where they're trying to make an electric car or something. And, and they're going to sound a little bit different during the first few months and first phase of everything because it's a brand new thing. It's just how it is. You don't have all the answers. You don't have that experience where, yes, I've been doing this forever. Um, even if you're in the, the same industry, there's a big difference when you're trying to create something new. And as, as Darren mentioned, he truly believes this is the first league of its, of its kind. But anyway, cut it, green interview. You know, some, somebody that is, that is a little bit green behind this. Next thing that jumps out is him clashing with Ali Abdelaziz. I think this is potentially the biggest issue with the World Fight League. He said he's trying to sign 192 fighters and starting 
January 1st, 2022, that's when the league is open. That's when they'll start signing these people. Given his relationship with Ali Abdelaziz, we're not probably getting anybody under his management, right? He he spent a lot of that MMA Hour interview kind of bashing Ali, which, again, depending on your your views... And we're not going to go into it too much because this isn't what the show is about. But, I mean, a lot of people would say that was justified. Regardless, from a business perspective, you've now probably blackballed yourself or your previous working relationship blackballed yourself, right? In which case, it didn't really matter for him to go out and say what he did. And maybe that's why he, he said those things. But... You are blackballed from one of the most prominent MMA managers in the industry. Which means that even if a Justin Gaethje decides to become a free agent and he wants to get paid more and get these health benefits or whatever, or a Kamaru Usman, right, is saying, no, I want to do all this stuff, doesn't really matter. Any big star under Ali his contract comes due through the UFC and he says, you know what, I really want to you know, try this World Fight League. We know how restrictive Ali's contracts are. My guess is you don't see any of those guys in the WFL. That's huge. That means even if this gets off the ground and you get a couple years in and then you get the opportunity to bid on some of these big-name players you're probably not getting them because of past relationships. That's massive from a business perspective. And then you go back and you see throughout his interview, you know, and more power to Darren Owen, that he is very passionate about the league aspect of it. He really truly thinks this will change things. Um, and, and, you know, again, more power to him. I, I wish him the best success in that. I really would love to see that happen just from a, you know, competition standpoint as well as just an idea like that taking off. But when asked about, you know, and challenged by Ariel Hilwani about the superstar aspect of it with Nate and Connor and all that, he just defaults to like, it's going to be the league. That's what's going to change everything. And he's really, it seems from the outside looking in, it, he's really bought into the concept and he's really driving the concept that it's going to be the league that is what f- fans and people are going to pay for. The stars are there and that's awesome, but it's really going to be more of the league aspect, similar to the NBA. All right, people, there are definitely people that want to see LeBron play and will, you know, go out of their way to see LeBron pay, play and, and won't go to a game if LeBron's not there and all that stuff. There are those people out there, but the majority of people are like, I'm a Lakers fan. And, you know, some years we're the best and we're bringing home championships, you know. We've got Kobe and Shaq, and now we've got LeBron and AD and all these people. It's like it's going to be awesome. And other years, well, we're kind of garbage. We're like, well, 
you know, here's a year or two where we don't really have anybody. We might have one or two bright prospects. Uh, we're not doing so well. It's kind of yeah. any sports team, right? That's how sports teams work. It's more about the team. But we've seen the IFL try this and fail, albeit a long time ago. So maybe it was timing is an issue and this will take off. I'm not going to say that, but who knows? And we've we've also seen the way ratings and pay-per-view buys correlate to particular stars. Now, one could argue that the UFC is essentially just one big team, right? That what I was talking about earlier with people becoming, you know, fans of the UFC and having that brand, there are a lot of people that are going to watch the UFC regardless of who's fighting. They're going to view it as the pinnacle of the sport. They're going to view the champions in that promotion as the best of the best. And even if they are or or aren't, sorry, even if they aren't, um, they're going to be fans of the UFC. They're not going to watch Bellator. They're not going to watch PFL. They're not going to watch WFL. And you could argue that that mentality could hypothetically translate into a league where people really want to see the Toronto Bruisers or whatever the names of the teams are going to be. Yeah, you you could make that argument. But so far, the data has kind of proven that's not it. And this concept is different enough than the PFL that I, I if it was going to take off, I think... It, it could, while the PFL maybe doesn't take off or vice versa. Because, again, PFL is looking at individuals. This is really trying to build a team sport out of MMA. But there, there's, there's no indication that Team MMA will take off at this point. Right? IFL was during part of the initial boom of MMA, where you had everybody watching tap out, or, or watching tap, everybody wearing tap out, uh, everybody watching pay-per-views. Buffalo Wild Wings were crowded. You could watch pay-per-views wherever. It was a whole thing. That initial boom in, in the early 2010s, right? IFL was around then, and it didn't survive. Albeit now you have a lot more money in the space, and investors willing to throw more money in the space and you have bigger broadcast partners and bigger sponsorship entities and probably bigger pocketed investors who are willing to take that leap now that they've seen the UFC work the way it does. But it's still, in terms of drawing fans to a particular event, seems to be all based on stars. Uh, individual sports, that's just how it goes. Tennis, same thing, right? You don't have team tennis. You don't have... Golf is a great example of this. You you have the, what, the Ryder Cup, where it's, you know, Team USA and Team uh, UK. And that's like a one-off event, and that doesn't do nearly as well as, say, like the Masters when everybody's trying to watch their favorite person win that or the, the the open, right? Like, it, it's... 
there are a lot of red flags from an outside perspective, for sure. I hope it is successful. I will say that just from a business perspective, I, I find it very interesting. I like the concept on paper. I think it would be fantastic if it worked. But basically being shut out of Ali's client base, trying to sign 192 fighters where owners are putting up tens of millions of dollars and then are splitting pretty much everything 50-50. You've got the medical, you've got insurance, all this stuff, much higher cost. I mean, the barrier to entry here is is very high. And another important takeaway from that interview, no set broadcast partner, right? They're going to do four MMA events in the span of 24 hours or 48 hours, it sounded like, where February 5th is the day, but before the Super Bowl, they're going to do three back-to-back back events and then they're going to do another Monday I would assume the plan there is to have one event in each of the four conferences right Um, but when asked you know where could you watch this he said you know holler let us know we got 75 hours of content let us know I'm sure he is talking to people and I'm sure they're working on a broadcast deal but that also signals to me that one is not in place yet the only way I see this being successful is if you get the exposure to really build a true fan base off of this, right? And and the only way to do that is to have a major broadcast deal. I, I don't think... I don't know. I don't know. My Lots of red flags to me as a consultant. I'm not... I'm not saying it's not worth a shot if you've got the investors. Obviously, there are people bankrolling this that believe in this concept, and I love the concept for what it is and would love for it to work. It's just... I, I would love to dive into some of the data during this deep dive that... Uh, Darren Owen talks about that he did. I'd love to dive into the data to see what points to this being the answer. Because I don't know how you attract your current fan base. There are there are hardcore MMA fans, right, that will watch this, obviously. And you've got the you've got a lot of conversations going on and attention of the biggest journalist in the sport. That is huge too. Right? Ariel has been breaking a lot of this stuff. Um, he was the one that kind of broke the news about the WFL. He's now talking to the owner. I mean, that's good. That's great publicity to get this out there. We're still a year and a you know, couple months away from actually seeing this in action. But the fact that Ariel is, is kind of giving you that free publicity publicity on a substack and on you know his shows is huge that's great but you still need a broadcast deal and you still need to find a way to entice fans and create a fan base for a team and not individual fighters which is very hard because 
again, he, he talked about, you know, having, you know, going to root for a team and like, oh, you get to see like a, a LeBron and a KD and a, all these superstars all there together. And it's like, yeah, that is true. But in fighting, it's going to be interesting because he also talked about having like your A guy versus your B guy. Maybe they bring your C guy in a different weight class. We'll see what happens. But what happens when you get, you know, the clear stars of the promotion or the clear standouts, rather, the guys that are doing very, very well and are maybe a, a cut above, which happens in every promotion, right? Um, what happens when they go out and then they're fighting, you know, guys, you know, they're going to steamroll. No one wants to see John Jones take on a, a well, Jones is maybe a bad example, but no one wants to go see Charles Oliveira take on a contender series lightweight, right? And that's an extreme example, but even, you know, do you want to see Charles Oliveira fight a, an outside the top 15 ranked guy? So I'm not sure how this concept is going to work because I don't know how it's going to, I don't know. We'll see. But those are the three things that stand out the most to me. Um, signing 192 fighters, getting them insurance, getting them revenue split, and having having that revenue split be enough money that it's better than UFC or other deals, right? To entice the bigger guys is also a question in my head because the costs are so much higher, but getting owners, getting enough owners, right? You're talking about 32, 32 people putting up tens of millions of dollars for this. That's a lot. And maybe those numbers, again, are exaggerated. And, and if so, it's fine. That's, that's what a CEO does, he sells. But I mean, what happens if you only get six owners in a particular conference? Do you have to restructure? Do you have to figure it out? I, or what happens if if a team shutters after season one? Right. Let's say you get, say you get all thirty two, and then next season comes around, and then the owners, a couple owners, are like, yeah, this isn't working for me. I'm done. And then you don't backfill. What do you do? The IFL ended up going from the league format to just regular type events in the end. I think there's a reason they did that. Right? I don't know. It's it's just, it's a great glimpse into startups though. This is one of the best examples I think you can see of, of how startups form and function. That's, that's maybe my biggest takeaway for this video is, and audio, this, this episode rather, is this is a prime example of how startups happen. You get a seasoned person who's been in the industry for so many years, they see an opportunity and or in their mind what they believe to be a true opportunity, they go and they start their own company and it's kind of messy and people look at them and, you know, turn their head and, you know, we we all might be laughing because this might end up being the biggest thing ever. I'm not going to say that, but it's possible, right? 
This is how entrepreneurship works a lot of the time. So again, hats off to Darren Owen for trying this. Hats off to him for getting the exposure that he's gotten on this. But there are so many red flags that I just don't see how this is going to pan out. So if you are hoping the World Fight League is is going to turn into this awesome type of thing, I don't know that I'd hold my breath personally. We'll see. We're still a year out. Things could change. More info, I'm sure, will come through. But it's an interesting look into real. This this is you know. This is this is what a startup looks like. In a way, I wouldn't say it's pre-seed because obviously there's money behind it, but it's it's kind of like a pre-seed a little bit. They haven't launched. They they've got a. They're working. He even mentioned proof of concept in the MMA Hour video, right? That's what he's building with the first events is a proof of concept to get more owners and get more people involved. That's startup 101. You have to have a proof of concept. You have to ideally have a couple small customer bases or, you know, a mentor or, or partner or group that is backing you. Then you go and you pitch and you get more investors and you so on and so forth. He is in that initial pitching phase. He is, hey, we've got some money. We're going to launch this product in a year or so. Come join us. Come own your own team. Come, you know, sponsor with us. Come be our broadcast partner. We're going to make tons of money. Here's why. And he's pitching nonstop. Great example of what a startup CEO founder does. Couldn't get a better example of this, I think, in MMA. At least right now, right? So, yeah, keep an eye on it. I'll continue to report in and give you my takes on it from a consulting perspective and from what I've seen in the startup world. But, yeah, I mean, it should be interesting. It should be interesting. (laughs) All right, guys, I know it was a bit of a longer episode. I appreciate you hanging in there with me. Um, Make sure you like, subscribe, bell notification. If you're on Apple, Spotify, Anchor, all of that, love you guys for listening. Uh, appreciate it as always. I'm going to get more consistent about uploading it. We have a little bit issue um, getting the audio version only, um, but I will start, you know, getting that up. That's on me. That's not anybody else. That's on me. Um, I will start uploading that more regularly. But yeah, let me know your thoughts and comments on any of the topics that I've covered. Let me know if you want to hear me talk about certain topics. I loved answering Scott's question. Uh, the other week. I'd love to continue to do that. Let me know. Love you guys for listening and appreciate all of you, every single one of you for uh, listening to this podcast and the episode and supporting me. So until next time, y'all, get money.